This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, the Atlantic staff writer Tim Alberta discusses his book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory. He examines the evangelical movement in America and its intersection with political issues. He's interviewed by Messiah University history professor and author John Fia. Before we get to this week's episode, we want to take a minute to ask for your help. Your financial support will ensure that C-SPAN can continue to produce podcasts that inform you about national politics, introduce you to the latest nonfiction books, and provide valuable historical context to today's news. Make a donation today and be a part of C-SPAN's future. Visit c-span.org slash donate. Tim Alberta, thanks for uh, this opportunity to talk about your great new book, uh, journalist, author, writer for The Atlantic, and I've recently learned Detroit Lions fan. Uh, <laughs> thanks for thanks for writing this book. It's it's really a brilliant piece of political and religious journalism. And I also read it as a kind of heartfelt plea for the evangelical community to, you know, quoting here from uh, Revelation 2, right, to return to their first love. Uh, I think that was the Church of Ephesus. Um, it's not, I know it's not easy saying things about the tribe or the community, a religious community, especially in which you sort of came of age. And I know that takes courage. So, uh, thanks. Well, professor, you're very kind for saying that. Uh, thank you because I know that you've lived through this same thing and, and you know, firsthand how difficult it is to be the squeaky wheel and to step out of line with your own tribe. Um, and I'll be honest, you know, I don't feel particularly brave or courageous in doing this. I wish, frankly, that I would have had the courage to do it a long time ago before this problem festered and got to where it is today. I think if I'm being honest, there was a long period of time for me where I knew that the problem existed. I could see it. I could observe it. And I just kept quiet about it. And um, I think for the reasons that many of us keep quiet, uh, you know, you you don't want to air the dirty laundry of your family. You you don't want to make people uh, look bad, especially when you know that, that, you know, that they might have uh, the best of intentions and a good heart, but maybe they've just lost their way a little bit. And, you know, um, ultimately, it took sort of a tragedy in my life to really reckon with this and confront it. Um, and and I, I feel almost guilty saying that because uh, I, I wish that I had uh, been able to confront this a long time ago. And I hope for anybody listening, uh, if they take nothing else from all of this, that, that uh, hopefully they will find the courage to do so. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, this. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of these interviews begin with, you know, how did you get interested in the book? Um, I'm interested in that question, but let's do it through your dad. Tell me, tell me a little bit about your dad, or tell us a little bit about your dad. Uh, his spirit sort of hovers over this book. I don't know if that's proper evangelical theology, <laughs> but 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 his spirit is definitely there. You dedicate this book to him um, as a way of kind of getting into uh, the subject and your motivation for writing it. Uh, and I know you've talked about this before, but tell us a little bit about your dad? So my dad uh, was an amazing guy, Um, uh, just someone who could have done anything he wanted in the world. And in fact, as a young man, he was kind of a hotshot New York banker, uh, rising rapidly in the world of finance and was uh, sort of 
able to call his own shots and had the world at his feet. And around the time that he was about 30 years old, he, he started to feel just this crushing emptiness, despite having a great salary and a Cadillac to drive and a beautiful home, beautiful wife, beautiful firstborn son, my oldest brother, Chris. My dad just um, felt empty and, and aimless. And he had never believed in God. He grew up in an unbelieving home. He considered himself a devout atheist, in fact, and he had since he was an undergraduate. And for one reason or another, he found himself one day wandering into a church in the Hudson Valley, Goodwill Church, and there at Goodwill, my dad heard the gospel for the first time, and he gave his life to Jesus. And it sparked this radical transformation. Uh, people who knew him, uh, my mother included, uh, they just, they didn't recognize him anymore. He was waking up at like four in the morning and spending hours in prayer, reading his Bible, filling legal pads with notes, sitting there meditating silently. My mother was not a Christian at the time. None of my dad's brothers, uh, none of his family members were Christians, and they all thought that he'd lost his mind. And then they really thought he'd lost his mind when not long after that, he felt the Lord calling him to enter the ministry, to, to leave behind his finance career and go to seminary to preach. And my mom became a Christian, but she still thought this whole thing was a little bit nutty. And my dad realized that it probably was a little bit nutty, but he, he felt the Lord anointing him and calling him to do this. So for the next couple of decades, my parents, who had been living this pretty uh, you know high-flying life, my dad was in finance in New York, my mom worked for ABC Radio in New York, um, they were kind of movers and shakers, they sold everything they owned, and they spent the next couple of decades living on food stamps and working in small church ministries around the country. And uh, that, that change of trajectory is really the, the the story of my family and what brought me to a place where uh, I grew up rooted in the Christian faith, specifically rooted in the evangelical tradition. And my dad, in so many ways, was not only my my role model uh, as, as a father, but but a, but my spiritual role model, the, the guy who, um, even though he taught me not to emulate him, to only emulate Jesus, you know, I did want to emulate him. And uh, for a long time, uh, I considered my dad to be uh, almost like the paragon of what a good Christian man was. Uh, and in many ways, that's still true. But as I grew older and became, uh, began to feel a certain disillusionment with the institution of the church, you know, my dad and I began to have some disagreements, which I think in many ways, the generational clash there is sort of an undercurrent of the book. How old were you? Were you even born when your father made his conversion? No, I wasn't even born yet. Uh, I was actually born uh, nine years after my dad became a Christian. Okay. And uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, you had these generational conflicts here. You do mention in the book that, you know, you still do attend church. Uh, I think if I got this correctly, you're pursuing a seminary degree. Um, you know, talk talk very briefly about, you know, you know, how you how you uh, have continued to kind of live a Christian life despite maybe some disagreements you've had with your father and with the larger evangelical community. Yeah, that's right. So, so it's interesting, Professor. My my faith 
has actually never been stronger than it is now, uh, which is a pleasant surprise, and I'm, I'm really grateful to the Lord for that. But it, uh, when I set out to pursue this project, I was really worried about what, you know, investigating the church and exposing some of this corruption and this drift would do to my walk with Jesus. And it's only made it stronger. Um, you know, I will say that um, I, I think for, for many Christians, including myself as of about five or six years ago, there's this idea that you can't possibly uh, love Jesus, you can't possibly serve God while simultaneously airing the dirty laundry of the church. But one needs to only look at, you know, the Apostle Paul, who in his letters, his occasional letters to the early churches uh, in the ancient world, was doing just that. And he was, and he was saying, listen, you know, um, we have a standard here, and we are we are held as as believers inside this church to the highest level of accountability. Uh, in fact, I write in the book about how the New Testament model really was g- grace and and forgiveness and understanding towards the outside world, towards those who did not believe in God because they didn't know any better but real strict accountability for those inside the church because they did know God and they did know better. And in the modern American context, it feels like we've sort of flipped that on its head, that we are uh, just incredibly gracious and forgiving and understanding and almost enabling toward those inside the church who are doing and saying things that are anti-biblical and unchristlike. But we are so quick to condemn and be hostile and antagonistic toward the outside world when we see that same thing. So my own faith journey uh, has taken some unexpected turns in recent years as I've simultaneously become more disillusioned with the institution of American Christianity and yet simultaneously drawn closer in my relationship with Christ. So uh, that is a journey that is very much possible, but I think in many ways one that seems counterintuitive or almost contradictory to, to some believers. Yeah. As I listen to you talk, Tim, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the book, okay? Uh, there's a lot, there's almost like a mini sub-genre of books right now that are emerging on, you know, ex-evangelicals or former Christians or Christians who are disillusioned with evangelicalism telling their stories about how evangelicalism fractured the nation or destroyed my faith, these kinds of things. I don't get the same impression from your book um, as I do when I when I read those other books. Um, is that fair? You know, I, I'm sure you're aware of some of the, this literature. I mean, are you positioning yourself somewhere? Is this book different? Or maybe you're trying to do the same thing? You know, Professor, it's a, it's a fair question. I think what I'm trying to do is be faithful um, more than anything else. And I don't want to sound trite or cliche in saying that. But ultimately... You know, both as a Christian and as a journalist, I was taught to, you know, seek truth. And I've tried to seek truth here. I've tried to both, you know, when you shine a light into darkness, which is really the job of of a good journalist, um, you are both exposing something that is wrong, something that is false, but you're also illuminating something that is right and something that is true. And so as I go about this project, 
what I'm really trying to do in, in shining that light is to not just expose what is wrong, but to illuminate what is right. C.S. Lewis wrote rather famously that we know what a crooked line is. We know that a line is crooked because we know what a straight line looks like. And I think for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we know what the commands of Jesus are, and we understand how we are to conduct ourselves as his followers and how we are to engage the world around us. Um, And when we see the church straying from that, I think we have an obligation and a responsibility lovingly but firmly to to call that out and to speak that truth to power and and that's all I've tried to do here and and mind you that I'm as flawed and uh, as imperfect as any of the people I write about in the book and in fact more so and and I'm not infallible uh and I know that I have made my mistakes certainly even in the pages of this book and I hope that um Nonetheless, God can use me as, as uh, a vehicle to help do exactly what, what some of these other folks are trying to do in, in their own way in these books you're describing, which is ultimately to turn our eyes back to Jesus and away from some of these sort of ephemeral distractions of this world that, that have become idols to us. Yeah, let's. That's great. Let's dig in uh, now to some of the content of the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Um, I mean, everyone is in here. I was I was joking with you before we went on the uh, before we went on the air that you know I've been blogging about this stuff for five, six, seven years, and every time I turned the page, there was another figure I was very, very familiar with and have been watching closely. Uh, but a lot of the figures that you write about really emerge into sort of public life, emerge into American evangelicalism uh, right around the time of of Donald Trump. And then you have the summer of 2020 uh, with Black Lives Matter protests, George Floyd's, um, uh, the killing of George Floyd. Uh, you have the COVID virus, all of this stuff penetrates the local church. And I think only journalists can sort of get at the way in which these monumental changes in the culture, uh, whether it be the political culture or whatever, have have uh, have shaped, uh, you know, these local congregations. Um, and again, you do a wonderful job of trying to explain this and, and interviewing the right people. One of the one of the there's several I, I'll call for lack of a better term, I'll call them human threads, people who who are threaded throughout this book, who show up again and again and again, that kind of in many ways drive your narrative. You're always coming back to them. One of them was your father's. I believe he was your father's uh, associate pastor, or his mentee, if you will. Uh, he pastors your dad's old church. His name is Chris Winans. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Yes. Um, how? Tell me his story. How does this sort of new pastor, new senior pastor, at least, navigate all of this change? And what does it tell us about evangelicalism in the last, say? six, seven, eight years? Well, I'm glad you asked because it's a fascinating story and I think there's a universality to it that is really instructive for a lot of Christians and a lot of churches. So my dad had essentially built this church that I grew up in from the time that it was uh, a, a startup, effectively, and had pastored it 
and led it for about 25 years. And, and this is this is in Brighton, Michigan. That's right, in, in the suburbs yeah. of Detroit, where I grew up in Brighton, Michigan. So my dad had been the pastor of this church for a quarter century, and he'd been looking for a successor for for some time. He'd been looking for an heir apparent, someone who he could groom to eventually take over. And and my dad was really stressed out about it in in, in the last years of leading the church. He he was really worried that he might not find the right person. And then one day. At a denominational meeting, he met this young associate pastor who happened to be working at Goodwill Church up in the Hudson Valley, the very church where my dad had been saved all those years earlier, and in fact, the church where my dad had worked his first job out of seminary as an associate pastor. I was born there. My nursery was in the church manse library. It's sort of kind of a holy ground for my family. That's what my parents always called this church in New York. So my dad met this young man, and he was just the perfect fit. He was the perfect candidate. He, he's, he, he, he's young. He's brilliant. He's humble. He's got just an exquisite command of, of scripture. And he just has a gentle heart and, and a servant's heart. And my dad thinks, oh, this is unbelievable. What, a, what wow, the, the Lord is working here. So he brings this guy to Michigan, to our church, to, to, to begin grooming him and so that he can take over. There's just one problem with this young guy, this young pastor, Chris Winans. He's not a conservative MAGA Republican. In fact, he's even like a little bit of a lefty. Now, he's not like a full-blown liberal progressive Democrat or anything, but Chris is somebody who his entire worldview as it relates to politics is through the lens of scripture. So he doesn't particularly like guns. He doesn't like violence. He doesn't like wars. He doesn't like bad language. He doesn't like adulterers. He, he, he's, he's, he's kind of a strict, morally upright guy. That would seem not to be a problem for some of your listeners who would say, well, yeah, it's church. He's a pastor. What's the issue? Well, in the context of a very conservative Republican congregation in a very conservative Republican community like the one I grew up in, that puts a bullseye on your back. People can just tell if you don't speak the language, if your cues are even a little bit off culturally, politically, they can pick that up. So this young guy, Chris Winans, comes in and eventually my dad names him the successor. He takes over the church and things start to go sideways pretty fast for him. Even just stray remarks that he makes off the cuff about current events or what's in the news, people are kind of coming after him for it. Now, my dad is still hanging around at the time. He's still, like, you know, looming around the church, and he's got Chris's back. And Chris knows that, well, as long as Pastor Alberta is here vouching for me, I'm going to be fine. And then my dad dies. And so, all at once, I've lost my father, and this young pastor, Chris Winans, has sort of lost a father figure in my dad, who suddenly... Uh, has handed over the keys to this big mega church to this young pastor who's already viewed suspiciously by a lot of his congregants. And then, shortly after my dad dies, boom, COVID-19 hits. And in Michigan, the Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, she issued a shutdown order that implicated houses of worship. And so pastors all across the state had a decision to make. Do you comply with the government and close your church for some period of time? Or do you defy the government and stay open? 
And for Pastor Chris and the elders at my home church, they thought that that was an easy decision to make, that, that you know, there was great uncertainty, great angst at that point, uh, a lot of older members in our congregation who were vulnerable, and they said, listen, we're going to take the safe route here, and we will do, you know, virtual worship for a few weeks, and we're going to close down the church. And then things really started to get bad for him, because there were a lot of people at our church who were furious, who thought that he was being a coward, who thought that they were sort of um, appeasing the regime, appeasing the deep state, appeasing the secular leftists who wanted to shut down the church and banish Christianity from public life. And I think here, Professor, I should just pause to emphasize how for evangelicals like myself who grew up steeped in the subculture and marinating in this message for decades that the left was coming for us, that one day that, that, that the church would be in the crosshairs and that the government and the secularists would try to persecute us and, and eradicate Christianity from, from American life. COVID-19 to a lot of these people felt like the fulfillment of prophecy. It really did. And so Chris Winans, this young pastor, suddenly he finds himself just hanging on for dear life because first it's COVID-19 and then it's George Floyd being murdered and the, and, and the racial protesting and, and demonstrating and, and riots that are breaking out and the violence uh, in cities. And then you've got Donald Trump's re-election campaign and the violence ensuing from that and January 6th. And suddenly this young pastor is completely distraught. He's seeing an exodus in his home church with congregants flooding out of the doors saying that he's not sufficiently tough, that he's not uh, willing to fight back against the left, not willing to fight back against Joe Biden and Black Lives Matter and the rest. And so this young pastor who just loves the Lord and wants to preach and wants to help shepherd this flock, he finds himself basically pushed to the point where he's wondering if he should just quit ministry altogether and walk away from the church. And it was sort of a tragic thing for me to witness. And he is losing members in his church and your dad's church to a another church down the road, pastored by a guy who is basically turning the pulpit into a crusade against uh, vaccines and critical race theory and so forth. And his church is growing, right? Rapidly. His church yeah. is growing rapidly. That, that's, that's exactly right, Professor. And, and again, this is where there's a universality to this that I think a lot of people will appreciate. Uh, this church right down the road from my home church in my hometown, I had never heard of it. It was a, it was a pretty small roadside church and uh, I had never heard of the pastor. It just, they were not really on my radar. And I did know most of the churches in, in the area because of uh, how I'd grown up and the networks that I was in. And yes, this pastor decided that he was going to use his church as sort of a staging ground to rebel against Gretchen Whitmer, to rebel against government orders uh, during COVID-19, and then really took it several steps further, started bringing in Republican politicians, started bringing in a lot of fringe conservative activists, and basically turned his pulpit into a soapbox, turned his Sunday morning worship into like an amateur Fox News set where they were spending you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes on some Sunday mornings just railing against the Democratic Party, railing against the media, railing against Anthony Fauci. And 
And this church was exploding in membership. In fact, they grew more than tenfold during a period of about a year uh, during the COVID pandemic. And and that growth was uh, directly attributable to all of these folks leaving churches like my home church. And, and they wanted something that was pugilistic. They wanted something that was militant. And they found it in this congregation. This was a it's kind of an unapologetic, blood and soil, Christian nationalist uh, pastor who was deciding to capitalize on all of this anger and resentment and grievance that he saw in the community from people toward their pastors who were unwilling to to do what you know he was doing, which was to effectively use the church as a weapon in the culture wars. And he was rewarded for it, this pastor. He was re- rewarded for it uh, mightily in terms of the growth of his congregation, in terms of the finances. In fact, recently, they moved into a massive new facility down the road, a, 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 a sparkling new multi-million dollar facility because of all the growth from this project that he pursued at the beginning of COVID-19. And this is happening all over the country. I followed closely uh, this guy in California, Jack Hibbs, and there are others who they, who they defied COVID protocol. They preached sort of sermons against critical race theory and black lives matter and they grew there are also other churches i think that 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 maybe were not as overt in using the pulpit for these things but they also uh grew which leads me to a question and i don't know if you can answer this or not but you know when these churches become so politicized um you know you hear people like robert jeffress who you interviewed for this book talking about getting people saved and preaching the gospel to what extent does the gospel then become not only the saving grace of Jesus Christ, but also you also have to adopt a particular political agenda in order to be a Christian too? Like, like imagine if someone went to this this pastor you're talking about in Michigan's church and um just started reading the Bible and said, "Hey, I'm I'm a I'm a liberal Democrat, right? Um, did the conversion stick? You know, this is the kind of question that uh, you know I'm often asking when I see these uh, see these churches going in this direction. What do you think about that? Well, I, I, look, this is I think in many ways the entire problem, which is that yeah. we've taken one standard. And, and and sort of swapped it out for another, or at the very least, we've pushed aside the biblical standard and we've put another standard right there next to it, which is the sort of partisan political, you know, tribal standard of, you know, where do you stand on, on vaccines? Uh, who did you vote for in the last election? Um, I've been in a lot of church settings where this is not implicit. It's not uh, a wink and a nod. It is spoken. It's verbalized. It's, it's very much made clear from the pulpit that this is the standard. This is the litmus test to be a part of our church. And I think that's discouraging, obviously, for any number of reasons. But chief among them, Professor, as you well know, is that the church is called ultimately to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the nations and, and to to make believers out of unbelievers and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And 
it is incredibly difficult to do that when you have erected these barriers to entry in the church that have nothing to do with Jesus, that have nothing to do with the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm often asked, well, what does it mean to be an evangelical? And it's a very good question. Um, Part of what it means to be an evangelical is the verb in that word, to evangelize, right? To evangelize to people who don't know Jesus. But how can we evangelize to people who don't know Jesus when we are telling them, hey, you know, Jesus is great and we really want you to know about him, but we can't really talk to you about him unless you vote the way we do, unless you, you know, uh, you follow the same Facebook pages we do, unless you're part of the same, you know, cultural tribe that we're a part of. If you check all those boxes, then great. We can have a conversation about how Jesus who was fully God and fully man, came to earth to be the mediator between God and, and, and mankind. We can have that conversation, but first, let's just make sure that you check all of these political boxes. That is an incredibly dangerous thing for the church to be doing, and it's now doing it at a scale that I'm not sure we've ever seen before. Yeah, so, you know, I've been, I've been studying evangelicalism for for uh, for a couple decades, I have been an evangelical uh, in that world for a long time. And, you know, we talk about walking the sawdust trail, you know, the old Billy Sunday uh, crusades, right? So you're walking up to the altar to get saved and become a, a Trump supporter or you know, whatever. It's just a really, really odd kind of time that we're in right now. But it's it's pervasive. And your book convinced me that this is going on, you know, all over the place. Let's talk about... Um, Let's talk about Donald Trump a little bit more. Um, you know, by this point, most of the people watching this know that evangelicals went for Trump, uh, you know, 80 percent, 81 percent of the numbers you see in 2016 and 2020. Um, when I wrote my book in 2018, it was published. Uh, um, believe me, one of the believe me was the name of it. One of the one of the critiques I got was that I was painting this these Trump evangelicals, the 81 percent with a kind of monolithic brush right they were all the same and and i think i got that wrong because there were people who voted evangelicals who voted for trump for all kinds of reasons they weren't there are people who voted for trump who were not you know wearing the make america great again hat at the rallies and so forth um you seem to you seem to have a sense of that of of the difference there what makes these voters different but also what makes them kind of unified well, I'm glad you asked that because I, I really try to go out of my way, I think on the second page of the book even, if, yeah. I, if memory serves, to, to make this point that when we talk about, well, why did you know, 80% of white evangelicals vote for Trump, we are talking about you know, tens of millions of people. And so let, let's, let's try to treat them with some nuance and let's try to really understand the diverse motivations and behaviors and impulses that that inform this this uh, question i think we have to consider these people as points that are plotted across the vast spectrum here and certainly at one end of that spectrum you do have evangelicals who are just sort of nakedly hypocritical who are political animals who are sort of shameless in their support for Donald Trump in fact they will still bring up Bill Clinton's extramarital scandals and his bad behavior today and then in the same breath 
talk about how, well, with Trump, you know, uh, God has sort of positioned him for this and chosen him for this, and God uses imperfect people all the time. So that is certainly uh, present at one end of the spectrum. I think at the far other end of the spectrum, Professor, you've got a lot of evangelicals who were kind of nauseated at the prospect of voting for Donald Trump in 2016. And they did so anyway. They did so because they have a deep abiding concern for the unborn. And they are single issue voters in many ways. And they care greatly about abortion. And they saw that there were going to be probably two or three Supreme Court uh, appointments during that next term. And they just kind of held their nose and they voted for Trump. And then in many cases, they asked for forgiveness afterwards because they felt so guilty about it. I think in the middle of the spectrum are where most of the people are, and they're sort of floating back and forth. And I think that for a lot of them, they're kind of they, they they're horrified by Trump's behavior. They think his rhetoric is awful. They they would never point to him as a role model for their children or their grandchildren. But I think for many of them, what does unify them to your question is a sense of American Armageddon, a sense that. This country, this blessed country that has been uh, so successful in spreading the gospel around the world, that has been uh, sort of at the cutting edge uh, of, of the freedoms, the, the, the God-given freedoms uh, that, that we have tried to exemplify in front of the world, that this country is under attack, that this country is on its last legs, that the secular, progressive, godless left is coming for Christianity, and that they've been coming for Christianity for a long time, but that now the fight has really intensified, and that if we don't stand up and do something about it now, then we might never get our country back. And for a lot of those folks who think that way, even if they find Donald Trump to be sort of personally loathsome, they're willing to look at him and say, well, desperate times call for desperate measures. Maybe maybe this uncouth you know, playboy millionaire with the with the with the filthy mouth and the three marriages and the casinos and all these messes. Maybe he's exactly the strong man we need to defend us and to defend the church and to defend Christianity in this country. So understanding why these people would view him that way is, I think, essential to then trying to unpack what's happening in the church right now and some of the fault lines that have emerged both during the Trump presidency and in the aftermath. Yeah, this idea of victimhood, this idea of fear uh, sort of pervades much of the this this kind of Trump voter. You know, at the at this and, and by the way, even a fear and victimhood, they're they're major themes throughout your book. Um, I just can't get around the idea, and I wonder what you think about this. I think you'll agree. I just also can't get around the ideas. As much as I want to see nuance, you know, as a historian, that's what we do, right? Complexity, nuance. At the same time, you know, 81% of American evangelicals are responsible for everything that's just happened, right? You know, January 6th, um, you know, the wall, the, you know... You know, it's 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 you who put him into office. You know, how would you respond to someone like me who who still is bothered by that, even though that 81 percent is a very diverse group? Well, listen, I, I would say two things. I would say first that I'm bothered by it myself in many yeah. ways. Um, uh, I think the second thing I would say is a lot of those people, they would 
respond to you and say, well, if Hillary Clinton had won and if uh, all sorts of uh, terrible things had happened, uh, including, uh, you know, a, a sort of um, a dramatic escalation in the liberalization of abortion laws and a sort of uh, accelerated attacks on Christianity in this country, uh, then, then wouldn't you feel responsible for that, Professor John Fia? And I think where we have to land on this ultimately is... People of good faith, uh, pun very much intended, can and should examine these political issues and come to some different conclusions. Uh, Certainly different conclusions on the what, what policies do you support, the who, who do you vote for. I think in many cases that is good and healthy. Now, I would also caveat that by saying that Donald Trump at this point has done everything possible, effectively daring evangelicals to to say, what more can I do to lose your support? What more do I have to say in order for you to recognize that I am a a deeply immoral and unwell individual, right? Um, So I would not at this point say that there is a highly credible, highly defensible case for voting for Donald Trump for president from an evangelical Christian perspective. I think it's difficult to find. However, I think in general, when examining our political system, there should be healthy disagreement among believers, again, on the who, who do you vote for, and the what, what policies do you support? I think at the same time, the one thing where there should be unanimity is on the question of how. How do we as believers engage with the political culture? How do we treat people with whom we disagree? How do we go about uh, carrying out our civic duties? And on that question of the how, Professor, there is simply no ambiguity when you read Scripture. We are taught to love our neighbor. We are taught to pray for those who persecute us. We are taught to turn the other cheek. There's just, there's not... There are no two ways to read the New Testament teachings here. And my fear is that the, the, the resentment and the grievance and the anger that we are witnessing in the evangelical movement today has almost created a permission structure. It has allowed a lot of people to say that basically all bets are off and the Sermon on the Mount no longer matters and we have to... Uh, sort of, you know, the, the ends justify the means. And, and, and in this moment of crisis, um, whether, it's, whether it's voting for Donald Trump or whether it's joining a sort of far-right militant movement or whether it's using our churches as a weapon to win the culture wars, it's all fair game at this point and the how gets thrown out the window. And I just think that that's such, it just does such a disservice to the gospel. And that that comes across very clearly in the chapter on on Ralph Reed, the the political op- evangelical political operative. It's about winning, right? I don't know how many times I've heard Reed say, you know, yes, everything you're saying, Tim Alberta, is right, but we need to win. Um, and again, that that ends and means question is essential. Are you optimistic though that evangelicals can engage deeply in the way that you're describing with the who, the what, the you know, the how, and so forth? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm struck by, I was really struck, uh, cause it's probably in my own neck of the woods here in Pennsylvania by this pastor you interviewed. He talked about who, 
who prayed at a Doug Mastriano rally. Now, Doug Mastriano being this Christian nationalist gubernatorial candidate who, who, you know, lost, lost in 2022 for the governorship. Um, but he seemed to have no clue what he was getting into when he was praying, uh, praying for Doug Mastriano at a rally or at least praying at the rally. Uh, he seemed completely apolitical. He seemed to have no interest in really thinking deeply about uh, how faith informs politics. And then I was also thinking here, you know, it just hit me, uh, this interview you had with the Yale uh, theologian Miroslav Volf, who basically says, I'm going to read here, I'm going to quote here, uh, that part of the problem in the evangelical church is the, quote, loss of educated thoughtful readership. And I'm going back here, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar at some point having encountered, it's now 30 years old, you know, Mark Knoll's famous book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, which leads me then back to the question, do you think evangelicals, you know, what hope do you have for evangelicals to be able to engage thoughtfully and deeply in this kind of political project that you're talking about? And, um, yeah, how much does just kind of populist anti-intellectualism just always, how much is it just always going to prevail? Well, Professor, let me say this, and I mean it sincerely. I, I am not choosing to be optimistic because in many ways, I'm deeply pessimistic about the state of the culture, the state of the country, um, and in many ways, the state of the evangelical movement, as I think comes across in the book. Right. I will say, however, that there is an optimistic note and, and something that does give me genuine optimism in this space, which is that there is, and I alluded to this at the outset, a very real generational schism here. Um, yeah. Throughout my reporting, what I was consistently surprised by and encouraged by was whenever I was in spaces with young evangelicals, um, you know, at one point in the book, I refer to them as the children of the moral majority. Uh, and by the way, I would consider myself a child of the moral majority, right? That was my dad's milieu. That was his generation. That, that was the movement that he was a part of. And I think that the children of the moral majority have enough distance from it now, and they are clear-eyed in a way that their parents really couldn't be. They see this for what it is. They see the unraveling of the church. They see the, uh, the, the, the pervasive influence of politics and tribal culture wars and, and money and corruption. They see how the gospel has been wielded as a cudgel against our perceived enemies in this country. And they want nothing to do with it, this younger generation. They, they, they really don't. I've been, I've been surprised at the extent to which I will run into and spend time around young evangelicals who on paper are just like their parents. They are culturally and politically very conservative. They, they would sort of reflexively lean toward voting Republican uh, every couple of years. But when you get into the meat of this, they are so profoundly different in terms of where their priorities are, in terms of their ability to compartmentalize politics as something sort of very different from their faith. And really effectively, Professor, understanding that politics should be viewed through a filter of their faith rather than viewing their faith through the filter of their politics. In other words, whereas many of their parents are 
listening to the sermon on Sunday uh, about poverty or about, you know, migrants or whatever, and thinking about it maybe through the prism of what they heard on Fox News that week, their children, they might see a Fox News clip and they're listening to something about poverty or migrants, and they're thinking about it through the prism of what they heard in their service on Sunday. And even at a school like Liberty University, which in many ways, of course, is sort of the avatar of, of the corruption and the grift and drift of the evangelical world. When you spend time around the students there, I've just been shocked in the best way possible to encounter how many of them are willing to sort of step out and, and break sharply from what their parents have done and what the previous generations have sort of set in motion inside the church. And so I will say genuinely that I do take some serious optimism from that. Let's talk a little bit about liberty, now that you mentioned it. Uh, another one of these sort of human threads, if I could call them that, uh, in your book is this family, uh, really father, son only appear in the book, the Olsons. Uh, you know, our time, we don't have much time left, but tell me a little bit about uh, the Olsons. What are their names again? Uh, one is an English professor, um, and one was uh, an early student at Liberty, Doug and Tim Olson. Yeah, D Doug and Nick, yes. Doug and Nick, Nick I'm Olson. sorry, Nick. No, no, that's, yeah. that's okay. No, it, it's, um, it's a fascinating story, and what I essentially tried to do was tell the story of Liberty University through two overlapping generational arcs, one of them obviously being Jerry Falwell Sr. and his son, Jerry Falwell Jr., who took over the university and then kind of infamously fell from grace uh, due to a scandal several years ago. But then even more so through the eyes of this other father and son, uh, Doug Olson had been a contemporary of Jerry Falwell Sr. He was one of the first students to enroll at Liberty University back in the 70s after it was founded. And, uh, and Doug Olson, who's now in his 70s, he's an older gentleman now, he was really a, a, on the inside of the Falwell empire. Uh, he married a girl who was very close with the Falwell family. Uh, Lynchburg, Virginia is a very small place back then, and everybody knew everybody. And this guy, Doug Olson, not only went to school at Liberty, but he, he wound up working on the faculty there, uh, working on the staff there, and got to know all these people really well from the inside. And what he saw back then really began to concern him, particularly as it related to the founding of the Moral Majority and the sort of turning Liberty University from a Christian school into a sort of cultural stronghold, uh, a place that was used less and less to advance the kingdom of Christ and more and more to advance the kingdom of republicanism in America. And Doug Olson eventually became rather disillusioned and he left Liberty University behind. And, and this, by the way, just so I can interrupt, yeah. this is this just so the listeners know, uh, viewers know, this is before the whole scandal you're reading about in the papers with Jerry Falwell and the pool junior and the pool boy. There's concerns going back to the 80s. That's right. right? Th that's that's exactly right. And I'm glad you you pointed that out, because, yes, this is happening in the 1980s with this man, yeah. Doug Olson. And so Doug Olson, he has a son, he and his wife, their firstborn son. His name is Nick. 
And Doug effectively decides that because their family has been so wrapped up in Liberty University and in the Falwell Empire, that he doesn't want to spoil that for Nick, that he's got his own concerns and his own disillusionment, but he's going to keep it to himself. And so Nick, his son, grows up and all he wants to do is go to Liberty, like everybody else in his family. And he does. And Nick winds up coming to school there. And he begins to see some of the same things as his father, some of the same corruption, some of the same greed, some of the same betrayal of of biblical principles. But Nick decides that he wants to uh, teach there. And he, he winds up joining the faculty and teaching in the English department. And for a number of years, he's trying to be a part of the solution. He's trying to help uh, save liberty from itself effectively. And then he finally gets to a place, as I'm talking with him for this book, where he just decides that he can't, that, that, that liberty in some ways is just too broken fundamentally perhaps for people like him to save it. And so he decides to go on the record with me in this book, detailing in, in a pretty astonishing way what he has seen from the inside at Liberty. And it's, it's a heartbreaking story, but I would also say it's a, a heroic story because to return full circle to the beginning of our conversation, Professor, one of the hardest things to do for anyone in any walk of life is to blow the whistle on their own people and to step out of line and to sort of shame their own tribe. And this this young guy, Nick Olson, he has a family. He's got young kids. He's got a wife. He's got a, a mortgage and a house. And he's got students who he loves. And he will almost certainly be fired by Liberty University when this book comes out because they have very strict rules there about sort of keeping everything in-house and not going and speaking to the media about what you've seen internally. It's, the, the school has effectively almost been run as like an organized crime syndicate for decades. And, and, and here's this guy deciding to blow the whistle and speak out because he believes that ultimately when he stands before the Lord one day, he's going to be judged based on this decision and based on how he decided to use his influence and his place in the culture and whether he was serving God or whether he was serving the things of man. And that is sort of the narrative arc, not only of Nick Olson, but of a lot of the characters in this book. This, that's just, that is just an amazing story. Um, and you know, we talked about courage at the beginning of this, uh, at the beginning of this conversation, um, you know, I mean, this 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 is an act of courage by Nick Olson. It's amazing. Over the years, uh, I have had a regular correspondence, email correspondence with about, I'd say, maybe four or five professors who are in the same place as Nick Olson. Some have left Liberty, but some are still there. And it, it really is a dysfunctional uh, situation, at least for an academic institution. Let me let me ask you here about some of these interviews that you did. And again, not much time left, but I was really struck, you know, by just who you were able to get to talk to you. And then when you did talk to these people, I guess I was surprised sometimes by the way that they answered. So, you know, you talk to Robert Jeffress at First Baptist Church, Dallas, and he hints at this idea that maybe we've gone too far. The evangelicals have gone too far with this embrace of Trump and it's hurt the witness of the gospel or this megachurch pastor down the road from your father's church. You know, you confront him on sort of misinformation about vaccines, I think it was. And he says, well, maybe, yeah, you're right. Maybe I sh- we shouldn't put that in the story or something. Or 
there's this guy who preaches under this huge tent named Greg Locke in uh, Tennessee. You know, he's, he admits maybe he went too far with some of his sort of pro-Trump or anti-vaccine um, uh, antics. And then, you know, this guy who runs this huge uh, Pentecostal charismatic media outlet, Stephen Strang, who's like very disturbed uh, as he's looking at Michael Flynn's, uh, this is the former national security uh, uh, advisor for Trump, his his reawakening tour saying, oh, this is way over the top. All these, uh, you know, all these things that these people are saying, you know, it's 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 a little bit problematic. Um, but they don't say these things in public. They don't say these things to their people. I don't know if it's because you were an Atlantic reporter and maybe they just like that kind of power and access. I don't know. I'd be curious what you think. But but it was really fascinating to me how how some of these people actually kind of yeah, maybe backed off is too hard of a word, but they at least offered a little bit of nuance. Well, you're exactly right. And, and this is, I would say, one of the thematic uh, undertones of the of the book, which is that a lot of these people in positions of leadership and, and influence, they know better. Right. Yeah, they, they do. And, and in a lot of these exchanges that you're describing, they're almost winking and nodding at me a little bit to say, listen, uh, you know, uh, you're calling me out on this thing. Um, I recognize that you're right. I recognize that this is crazy. I recognize that this thing is not true. But for many of them, they'll sort of say, you know, by using some of these tools at my disposal, I'm then bringing in more people. And then once I've brought in these people, then I can reach them with the gospel. So really, I'm playing three-dimensional chess here, and, and the ends justify the means, again. Um, but you're right. It, it's, it's, it's disturbing and really discouraging because, you know, shepherds are called to not only look after the sheep, but to keep the wolves at bay. And a lot of these people have themselves become wolves. There's just no other way to say it. And I wish that I could say it more diplomatically. I wish I could um, hedge my, my rhetoric a little bit here. But I, there's just, there's no way around the reality that for some of these people, uh, whatever their motivations, whatever the um, incentives that have sort of brought them to this place, they are now actively harming the witness of Jesus Christ. They are actively undermining the mission and the purpose of his church. And it's tragic, but it's not necessarily new. Um, and I think, you know, we should recognize that there have always been, dating back to the first century, there have always been heretics. There have always been people who have traded on the name of Jesus uh, for, for extra-biblical aims. And... Um, and I do think that it is incumbent upon those of us who, again, we are sinners as well. We are flawed. We will make our mistakes. We will stray from the path and we will need forgiveness for doing so. But those of us who are clear eyed in seeing this for what it is and what it has become, we have an obligation to speak about it. And we have an obligation to try to reach some of these folks who have been led astray and who perhaps don't know better and therefore have been seduced by these, 
these earthly idols of nation and power and politics, uh, we have an obligation to try to reach them and to try to bring them back. Because at the trajectory that we're on now, this is heading towards something not only dangerous and not only damaging, but, but I would say dangerous as well. Yeah, our time's just about up here, Tim. That's really, really, really well put. Um, you know, there's so much more we could talk about. I haven't even, I hardly even, I don't think I've mentioned Russell Moore. He features prominently in your book. Rachel Denhollander, uh, the, the sexual abuse scandals in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, Julie Roy's, uh, you know, this whole kind of infrastructure, media infrastructure of kind of whistleblowers, you know, so, so much more in here that we didn't get to cover. But in the last minute or two, I want to end on, I don't know if it's a lighter note, it's a lighter note to me, but tell me about, tell me about Robert Jeffress's shrine, quote unquote, shrine to Donald Trump. Yeah, so Robert Jeffress, uh, for those who don't know, is the pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas. It's one of the country's really historic mega churches, and it's a position of, of enormous influence uh, and, and, and religious authority, really. And Robert Jeffress is best known for being probably Trump's most outspoken evangelical ally, someone who has, you know, stood by his side through thick and thin. And I've gotten to know Pastor Jeffress very well uh, over the years, and, and I must admit that I rather like him. I find him to be uh, just a, a, a very kind individual and someone who I've prodded and prompted to try to be a little more introspective in thinking about these things, as you alluded to a moment ago, Professor. What was most striking to me in the time I've spent talking with Pastor Jeffress was he brought me into his office at the church in Dallas, and his secretary had pointed out this corner of his office and had called it a shrine. She was sort of being tongue-in-cheek, but it truly is a shrine to Donald J. Trump. It is unlike anything I'd ever seen anywhere, much less inside of a church. I mean, dozens and dozens of framed photographs, um, banners and signs with Trump's image on it, um, printed out tweets and email correspondences signed by Trump, a pair of Trump's cufflinks, all, all of these all of these things that had been gifted to Jeffress, he had on display there. And I just, I don't want to overstate it, but it was, I think I describe it in the book as a temple to Trumpism. And yeah. uh, that's exactly what it was. And uh, obviously, it's almost humorous, but it's also, I think, pretty disconcerting. And, you know, I think pretty revealing, a window into some of this. Uh, Tim, our time is up. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with uh, me today. I wish we could go another couple hours. Maybe someday we'll get a chance to sit in a coffee shop and 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 do that. But I love the book. Uh, get out there, get a copy. Great Christmas gift, Professor. I hope we get the chance to do that. I'm a I'm a great admirer of yours as well, and thank you very much for the opportunity to to have this conversation. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you are interested in podcasts about nonfiction books. Listen to C-SPAN's Book Notes Plus podcast for interviews with authors and historians hosted by Brian Lamb.